Hey, do you have a band that you're that you like that you're embarrassed to listen to to admit that you that you listen to their music? Because I do. Oh, Because I do Matchbox Twenty. Ah! I was just listening. I, was just I, listening I like to this. Matchbox Twenty. Why do people not like them? I was just listening to this song Downfall, and I was like, "This is an epic song. It's just epic." Yeah, they, I don't think you should choirs. feel shame. I love Matchbox. Look at this, listen. Rob Thomas forever breaks down into this. They're like a good pop alternative band. Just goes into this, but then it kicks back up. Where's when are they gonna get back in here? Here we go. Here we go. Ready? Ow. That's just great. It's just great, like '90s, um, early aughts kind of stuff. I don't think you should feel. Why would you feel embarrassed of that? I don't know. You are listening to Weird Religion. Hey, this is Brian Doak. Hi, my name is Leah Payne. This is Weird Religion. Why would I be embarrassed of it? Because nobody likes Matchbox 20. That's uh, I like Matchbox 20 and you I'm do? not embarrassed of it. I also like Hanson and I don't care who knows it. Oh. They were great. Yeah. Anybody. Like Pentecostal boy band from Tulsa. Good for them. Absolutely. I actually saw a thing on Twitter where Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister. Okay. <laughs> just oh they're back in the randomly news now. well d snyder oh, I, I know why they're back in the news well this too. is for a different thing but d snyder just randomly tweeted hey like hansen came on my spotify and i listened to the whole album and it was awesome yeah <laughs> yeah something to that that effect i'm paraphrasing yep. but yep. yes i i i don't you know i don't really believe too much in musical guilty pleasures i think you like what you like mm. and I mean, I used to do when I taught you and I both use music in our classes but when I taught I used to use um, I would have students DJ if mm -hmm. you when I taught night classes because it's really hard to get people into it. Oh yeah. So every every class I would have a student guest DJ. They got to pick the music. Okay. It had to be stuff that that was like appropriate for public audiences, which yeah. is kind of you know that. Sure. But then I would have a guilty pleasures night where everybody would be able to submit the music that they felt guilty about listening to. There was a lot of Britney Spears in there. Okay. And I I my thought is Britney Spears sang a lot of incredibly written pop songs. No mm. guilt there. Yeah. Anyhow, why do you ask? I, I have no idea. There's no, there's <laughs> there's no, no reason. No, I thought there was going to be an intro. No, no, there was no intro. That okay. was, that was the intro. You just want to talk about Matchbox Look, 20 and your friend, Rob Thomas. Yep. Uh, that's it. Goodbye. <laughs> um, it's the end of the school year. Yep. It's a little, it's a wacky time of year. The hallways get quiet. Yes. The local coffee shops empty. This is how we started doing a podcast. We were the only people working. Do you remember that? Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. We had we had these listeners. We had these two little closet offices. Neither of us had windows. We've we've ascended oh, in this man. world. Now we have offices with windows. There's a nice tree out there right <laughs> but now. But that's how we we um that decided we were gonna make a podcast. <laughs> that tree outside the window. I take pictures of that tree sometimes in its various Beautiful. stages of, of season seasonality. You've really ascended in this world. You have a second story office with a gorgeous view. Yeah, I think of I'm trees. changing offices sometime soon, so it'll be <laughs> back to the basement for Here's you. Here's the thing that I saw recently, mm -hmm. and and a story came up, a memory. Mm. So this is something I saw that sparked a memory, which will take us into the story at hand. Great. I was walking down the stairs uh -huh. in the building we are in, which features a stairway made from a tree, old tree. a large old. Beautiful actually. tree that was cut down some like expensive tree, like mm. mahogany or mm -hmm. I don't even remember what it is, but a very expensive tree. And I came down and lo, they're sitting in a plush chair in a in an arrangement of four plush chairs around a little piece of college 
building, coffee table, coffee table, furniture, decor, is a young woman. Aww. And she sits with a Bible open on her lap. Okay. The act of reading, first of all, right there, the act of reading the Bible publicly, mm-hmm. just reading it. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you know, people might at a university take classes They could be on taking one of your classes. They could be. They weren't in this case. Um, but right there, the act that, that you will read the Bible publicly, that mm-hmm. you will even take out the Bible physically and display it, even if upside down, to show <laughs> that you are, just to, just to posture just with it, it, to pose yep. with it, mm-hmm. to be seen with it, to mm-hmm. feel it, to mm-hmm. set it on your desk and to set nothing on top of it. To hold it up in front of a church building. To, hold, to hold it up. Okay, right there. <laughs> so there's that theme going on. But mm-hmm. something even better. Mm-hmm. I saw in the Bible, without really even seeing where what, what she was reading. You know, you don't want to be creeping on somebody right. too closely. But mm-hmm. I look. But you are a Bible scholar, so. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to care. I'm going to care. So I look, and I notice that she has in her hand a purple highlighter. Okay. And she is... And she is highlighting passages in the Bible. An- another another classic evangelical Bible performative act. Aww. You highlight in the text. You write in the text. That's true. Some people might feel squeamish about writing in the holy mm-hmm. text. But no, the, there's a different way, like the physical engagement with it. You mark mm-hmm. it up. You put exclamation points and things. And you have multiple Bibles that you've read through that you've marked up in each phase. Mm-hmm. And they tell you something about your life during that time when you read mm-hmm. it. And in this case, the young woman was highlighting with a, per- a dark purple highlighter. And I look down and almost in one of these like moments like The Shining where she discovers his manuscript he's been working on and is <laughs> and a little it, bit horrified. Yes. She had highlighted every word and every sentence <gasps> of the entire pages that were open. So did your Bible scholar brain, what happened? How did you process this moment? Well, okay. I got, I got a little horrified by this. Aww. Not because she was reading the Bible publicly and not because she was highlighting in her Bible. No. I, do, I do these things. Or would do these things. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the idea. There was a practical. There was a practical, mom, a practical moment of pain, and then a memory back even further where it took me. The practical moment of pain. Let's start with that. If you're highlighting every single word in a book, <laughs> like as a practical yes. study aid. Now, if they're all special words, there none of them are special. Yeah, words. like is what is being what is being highlighted? Right. I I can. I have known people, I think, who do highlighting or underlining as a as a as a, a kind of like a stay with it reading technique. Sure, kind of yes. like okay, I know I read that, and you're just going through, and really, it's a disposable product at some point. You're not mm-hmm. highlighting to go back and find it. You're highlighting to mark that you've done it to keep yourself on task. Sort of like a a grounding kind of exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's meditative, and I could see that in the case of the Bible, it it, it puts you in contact with the text mm-hmm. in a particular way. Um, and should not every phrase be highlighted? All scripture is useful for teaching and preaching, says the pseudo pseudo Pauline author of Second <laughs> Timothy. Is that Second Timothy three sixteen? I don't. I remember know. the three sixteens. I don't. Uh, yeah, Second Timothy three sixteen. Oh, I gotta, I gotta trust myself. Yep. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. There you go. So if all of it is. You really don't want to miss out. You really should. In fact, she was performing a kind of theology there, which she she probably wasn't intending, which is to perform that verse. Mm-hmm. All of it. All, every, All of it. every, every single, single every word. Single word. Okay. So there's that. Mm-hmm. But the memory. What was the memory that it unlocked? I went to a Christian college mm-hmm. in the second half of my undergraduate education. Yes. And at that Christian college, we were required, not asked, not suggested, required to go to chapel. 
Oh, okay. And it was, I think it was even twice a week back in those days. Wow, that's a lot of chapel. Many colleges would not be able to get away with that Very godly. Many colleges would not be able. Yes, most don't. Most do not. Yes. Most do not. But this this college did. And it was in the Bible Belt. It was in Mm -hmm. Missouri. Mm -hmm. And we had, okay, think of the practical problem that you've got here. You've got to put on chapel programming twice a week for an entire school Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. To do it once a week is tough. Mm -hmm. But twice? I mean, the variety of these speakers, mind-bending. Right. The contents, right. life-changing. Well, you feel you feel badly for the person, who, the administrator, who's just, oh whose job it is oh to stir souls, to Absolutely. encourage devotion. Absolutely. But twice a week. That's a lot. That's to a elevate lot the human spirit twice mm-hmm. a week and in front of a crowd of like, you know, maybe like 700 college undergraduates. Yes, that's hard. Not all of whom wanted to be there. Right. Some of whom wanted to be there sometimes, but not all the time. That was me. Right. Depends right. what it is. And, you know, it was kind of a moment. Sometimes we'd have like orchestras playing for us. Wow. I remember one time there was this Polish traveling orchestra that played the song based on like Genesis 1 through 3, like this orchestral piece. Oh, nice. And this very jaded Christian school audience who's hearing two chapels a week for, the, for life. Right. Basically, at the end of this, it was so captivating. They rose to their feet in a standing applause. Aww. Um. I'm going to see if I can find it online right now. Okay. I haven't thought of it forever. I even know the name of this song. Yeah, I can't find it anywhere. It was obscure. It was very obscure. <laughs> um, but anyway, in this particular chapel that I was taken back to, upon seeing the young woman with the purple highlighting, we had an artist. Okay. He was he was kind of like a middle-aged, slightly older guy, as I remember him. There was nothing in his form that should attract him to us. Okay. Um, he was not Jesus Christ, but he was just, he was a humble man. He was an artist. Oh, and he was talking about his art, which was on display in the chapel lobby. Okay. He was being disrespected so badly during his Aww. chapel sermon. Have you ever been in a chapel where someone was being like disrespected? Yes, like yes, yes, definitely. And it, it, it I, feels bad. Yes. I went to a chapel service once years ago where they had hired a Southern Gospel Quartet mm-hmm. to come and perform for a bunch of college students, not in the South. Uh-huh. So there was like no real way to appreciate the cultural artifact uh-huh. of, of Southern gospel music, right? Because it is, there's this kind of nostalgic, it's a white, predominantly white um, form of, you you know, Southern, it's, it's in the name, sure. Southern and gospel. Sure. And it was a little hard to understand and it was a little, you know, the students, actually, you know what happened? The students kind of first were laughing, uh, then they got over it, and then they got really into it. Oh. And the quartet, they were just like, we are killing it. Oh. But what they didn't understand <laughs> was that there was a little bit of, you know, they were, it wasn't entirely respectful. Anyway, keep going. I'm no. listening to what you're saying. I mean, this the point is this happens. Yes, right? it does. Like this happens. Mm-hmm. And it can change. There can be movements. Yes. I think even this this particular chapel was so disrespectful. There was even like a, uh, an article in the, in the next week's or next month's student newspaper being like, oh, no. that behavior at that chapel was so disrespectful. Are we a Christian university or oh, what are no. we? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. His art was a very particular kind of art. And okay. I, I remember it to this day. Maybe okay. connected with the disrespectful chapel issue. Maybe with just because of what the art was. And the art was this. And I've tried to find it online and I can't find it. Maybe someone else could find it or actually knows what this is. He he might not have been a prominent artist. His art was centered around taking pages from the Bible, actually taking them out and using um, opaque paint 
like not see-through paint necessarily, mm-hmm. but opaque. Actually, actually, that's very important to the story. Opaque okay. paint, paint that you cannot see through. And mixing up a color kind of like a super neon green, like a highlighter, uh-huh. and just neatly painting over every single line of the Bible. Oh. In these framed pictures. Okay. And sometimes he'd like even blow up a page of the Bible, so that was really big, and right. paint over it. And it was kind of like supposed to be this meditation on the ways in which we read scripture, but in our devotion and even in our attempts at piety, actually erase or overwrite the Bible mm. itself, which is a very fascinating well, this, thing, right? Yes. This, this, well, wait, finish, finish the chapel. Yeah. And so, the, and so the, the chapel ended. I don't think anybody was really very moved, but I remember it and I was very taken by it. And you were like, I'm going to become a Bible scholar. I'm going to become a Bible. That's my, that's my villain origin story. Is it really? <laughs> that very day. Really? Um, no. But That'd be interesting. We could make it. We could well, make it. this makes this brings up a really good question, which is you are a Bible scholar now, and I presume the kind of practices that are scholarly reading practices are so different for most people. Mm-hmm. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a really different style of encountering texts. Yes. And did you ever... I, I've talked with a lot of people who are Bible-y types yeah. and asked them, can you go back to, could you ever read the text again with the kind of like, I'm going to uh, highlight every, uh, you know, th- this young woman who you saw her reading. Yes. Um, I, I'm assuming that this stood out to you because there was some part of how she was performing this act that reminded you of something. Could you ever go back in time and read, you know, Read with read, re-enchanted read, read like eyes. That. Yes. Yes, I can. I know I can because I, I, I have done it. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. It's not a problem at all. I do it. Um, But it is... Do you have to adjust? Is it a conscious like gear shift? Yes, it's a gear shift though. Mm-hmm. It's a gear shift mm-hmm. kind of moment. One of the things I think to teach the Bible as an academic discipline, even in a Christian setting, and then of course, you know, it, to teach in a, in a public secular setting, which I've taught in two different institutions right. where that was the mode is also different, difficult, but maybe in a, in a different way. Although you have some of the sta- same student kind of population actually in both kinds of settings. Of course, right. One of the first things is like, you're almost like trying to make this pitch to students. Like, hey, we're going to study the Bible together. And like right. half the people in there are like primed for that. They're like, yeah, it's great. But what they're waiting for and ready for is that highlighting, that kind of engagement, like a devotional engagement. Right. So you have to try to sell people right away on this idea that you're not criticizing that. Maybe, you know, if you're in a Christian context like I am, that I do that and that's totally right. fine. But this is not that. But that this is not that. Right. That is just, a difficult And sell. they're just kind of looking at you like. But what else so is there? So what now are we doing? Exactly? Right, right. And I think in a lot of ways, one of my biggest frustrations, and I'm not blaming anyone for this frustration, by the way. I blame only myself for this. But it is a frustration. Is that I think in a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, I never can quite get the group past that idea. I think that's true. Like a third of the group will just be a holdout on that and they'll be disappointed at the end and they'll just be like, yeah, I just don't think it's worthwhile. And we talk a lot about this, like this idea of reading scripture that it's almost like, I mean, I say this, it probably sounds like I'm attacking faith when I say this. I'm, I do not mean it that way, but it's like, I'll try to like, I, I try to identify with the class by saying, hey, probably a lot of the mode, the mode we get in when a lot of us read scripture is like what we could call a feelings slam. That's what I would call it, like a, po- a poetry slam. slam but yeah. It's like a feeling slam. So like you just read a verse and then you say how you feel. Well, right. Yeah. That's y- kind of the mode. I think of the highlighting mode. It's like, oh, that. Remember that. I feel that. And it is very emotion based, which is not bad. 
but that is a particular mode. And if you're going to study, you can't have a feelings, you know, slam on the text. That's not what it's not. What well, you're that's doing. the only thing. That's not the only thing you can do. You can feel while you're doing other things, right? Yeah. I, this reminds me of, well, when I teach classes about like, like history of Christianity classes, mm-hmm. I always hover around, give a little extra time to the pietists, mm-hmm. like the German kind of second generation or so Lutheran um, folks who popularized the mode of reading that mm-hmm. I think that the highlighter model epitomizes, which is this very um, devout and in some ways, it, it, I don't want to say individualistic, I want to say personal, a very mm-hmm. personal reading mm-hmm. of the text and an anticipation that like, by encountering this text, you will have a personal feeling, experience right. that you share with other people, and like the, the Bible study model, yep. basically, which um, can be very fulfilling for people. And, you know, there, there are many potential benefits. But I would say that if that's the only thing that you do, mm. then when you encounter somebody who is a historical critical reader like yourself, you were trained in the historical critical method, right? Yep. Like, then it's sort of jarring because you're not used to thinking of it outside of yourself and, right, and outside right. of your own perspective. And so then when right. you're like, oh, wait a minute, let's think about how people maybe several thousand years ago would right. have encountered the world. Maybe they maybe they didn't think of themselves as an individual unit with right. like only individual right. feelings. You well, know? And I think the idea would be that you would want to develop the flexibility where you could go back and forth between those devotional modes right. and the other modes. But that actually, it turns out, as it turns out, friends, that is actually hard to do. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's hard to do, to go back and forth between those modes. And if you like have a career trained in doing this and so much practice, you could do it. But it doesn't come naturally. And I think I thought, when I started teaching, I think I thought that would come more naturally to people. And I think, okay, when you start talking about the individual, though, I thought, now this is something you know a lot about. 19th century right. revivalist movements, right. pietists and people like that. Like, what was it about the rise of an individual in the 1800s in particular when these movements, like, was there some concomitant idea that in the 1800s you have the rise of the notion of a person as having some kind of meaning? Of course, the United States finally got around to banning slavery and counting mm-hmm. all people as real people. And they, in the 19th century, you also had, like, industrial revolutions that could have called into question, you know, maybe made people individuals in new ways or something like that. So that there's a new mode of Bible reading that goes along with that. Yeah. Well, I think of it as kind of a soup, you know, of, of different ideas that have grown that I don't think progress is the right word, but that just that develop over time. So you kind of have like the early modern era, you, you get a little ways into the reformed era and you get pietists who talk about, you know, who, who inv- I don't know if invent is the right word, but they popularize a kind of Bible study type of right. encounter with, with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the stuff that you're talking about, I think about like 18th century ideas about human rights mm-hmm. that emphasize, end up emphasizing the individual. All those people like Hume and Kant and all those yes. Enlightenment style thinkers. You start to think of yourself as a distinct self from your community, mm-hmm. which is not the the world of the Bible, right? right? Like, and then you start to think of like the idea that you would think of your mind as separate from your body or, you know, like those kinds of ideas. Right. And then in the 19th century, yes, I think like the, 
the rights language that's used in the logic to abolish slavery, you also see a, the rise of an industrialized world and people start behaving and thinking in, in new ways, right? In, mm-hmm. in, in response to the rise of cities mm-hmm. and technology. Mm-hmm. And to me, I think revivalism is this weird mashup of these corporate rituals where, you know, if you go to a, a revival, it's very rare. You can't have like a solo revival, right? <laughs> Other people have to be there to experience it, to observe Introverts you, dream. to recognize you. Go to the revival, you. it's just going to be me. Yeah, I mean, I you know, people talk about that. Like you, I see Instagram people talking about, you know, I had this moment by myself. But in terms of like the revival, revivalism is a corporate, typically a corporate act. Yeah, as a proper thing. And also it's an individualized experience, right? Like you go up there, you personally have this. So I think of it as a blend, you know, of, and, and so these, like, if you're having this Bible reading experience, it's going to be informed by those traditions. Right. Right. I like I, that. I'm missing so much. I just talked about hundreds of years. No, Somebody I mean, listening what is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's also in 1784, yeah, the, yeah. this, oh, that's great. That's what the scholarly world is about. My favorite book for thinking about the Bible as a book, as a physical book that's mm-hmm. used, abused, sold, bought, consumed, mm. studied, prayed with, is a book that we brought up on the pod. I've brought it up several times before, I think. It's called The Rise and Fall of the Bible. Yes. The Unexpected History of an Accidental Book by Timothy Beale, a very weird religion-endorsed scholar. Friend of the show, just kidding. No, he's not, but yes. we bet he would be. Yes, we think so, because um, we've, we've plugged his book several plug times. Plug your book, Tim. Yeah, give us some royalties, yeah. Tim, for this. I don't even know if he goes by Tim, Professor Beale. But one thing, I, I was revisiting this book because of a question someone had asked me a little while ago, and he, it reminded me um, of, of a point he'd made in the book that uh, about the codex, the, right. bo- the book form that we have today, right. and about its origins, the idea that instead of a scroll, like think about those two physical acts. You have a scroll, and you know to get to the right place in a scroll isn't always easy. Right. Um, scrolls are, are heavy, they're expensive, can be heavy, can be expensive, can be very wieldy. Mm-hmm. Think about clay tablets, right. cuneiform. People use clay tablets. I mean, the cuneiform writing system, at least like say for Akkadian or ancient Babylonian and Sumerian was a very, very wieldy system that only a few people know how to use. There were like 700 or more signs and they were very complicated things and you know, tablets are heavy and you've got like truckloads of tablets. Right. Versus it's expensive, time it's consuming. expensive versus a book. I bet, I bet, and I don't know enough about this to cite anything, but I bet, I bet in the um, 18th and 19th centuries, I bet, I bet books became just more available to people. Right. It was probably easier than it had ever been before by leaps and bounds to have a physically bound Bible. Well, and also the reformers were really big into literacy because they wanted, right. you know, you the read it. believers to understand. Yeah. The Bible. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that spawns like a huge boom in right. just individuals being able to read the Bible. Right. So if you're going to go to a Bible study, the best thing to be able to do is to have your own Bible and bring it. Right. And so that idea, but uh, Beale also brings up another point that I thought was really um, fascinating about a scroll. He says, and I'm reading from the book here, page 115, whatever led to the unique rise of the codex among early Christians, the new medium was profoundly influential on the scriptural culture that developed around it and by mm-hmm. means of it. Above all, it facilitated new practices of reading. A scroll prescribes a linear reading experience. You start in one place and you continue to scroll along in a certain direction. You don't easily jump back and forth in the text. Cross-referencing is not practical, nor is reading short passages from different parts of the text. Codices, by contrast, readily accommodate random access. Mm. A reader can easily jump 
backward or forward in the text or between two different texts in the same codex without losing her place. She can even bookmark related passages to read together one after another or highlight or I'm adding commentary. Right. Right. Write in notes. In this way, the codex encourages readers and hearers to discover intertextual connections. And what does that particular feature encourage? This is my commentary now or my summary, but the Christian mode of reading. Right. Which, you know, when, when Christian communities are going to look back to the Christian Old Testament and then move quickly to the New Testament back and forth and back and forth, there's actually a theological meaning there in the form of the codex itself that facilitates a Christian reading of the codex or of the Bible in particular. Do you think it's safe to say um, that it also encourages the so-called canon within the canon? Or oh, you can yeah, like yeah, yeah. make you can you can make cases, sort of build legal arguments for a particular theological reading mm -hmm. because you have this kind of like you you have the capacity to just move up to to technologically like yeah move quickly enough. Cause I could imagine if you don't have that capacity, you're sort of, right. you're sort of, you have to stumble through all those stories and genealogies and you don't like, yeah. you can't quickly yeah. make a case. I think that's a great point about the canon. It, it could even encourage even further atomization mm. of just even having like favorite Bible verses or things that you highlight or even right. the kind of the, I don't do TikTok. I don't have a TikTok account. I look at TikTok sometimes. I when find I it to see be something. overwhelming. That's my age, but yeah, it's it's just a lot. I don't yeah. want to get into that. Um, but I mean, as a person, I don't want to get into going on TikTok right. or being on it. I'd probably get attracted to some of it. But like the kind of format that it encourages, this like bite size. You could say like social media encourages this kind of mm -hmm. very small and quick engagements. I mean, that's the fastest growing category right now on YouTube are the YouTube Shorts. Right. Right. I mean, it's this shorter content stuff that people are really. Into we we used to even do longer podcasts of like an right. hour plus and you know we we've gotten down to this thirty minutes because like hey maybe your commute's thirty minutes okay and so well, that's what we're shooting for one so. one thing that I think actually that that makes me think about when I think of this kind of that the role that technology plays in our shaping our imagination mm -hmm. around the Bible is the role that other kind of cultural norms. Um, like our, our just our socio-political economic setting plays in shaping what we think the Bible is. Mm -hmm. One book that this brings to mind is by Stephen Prothero, The American Bible, Whose Bible is Oh, yeah, this? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's a really He's a great public interesting kind of survey kind of, author, yeah. of how, our, how, how the Bible has been shaped and shaped by kind of big important thinkers um, so, you know, Abraham Lincoln, MLK, mm -hmm. JFK, Reagan, mm -hmm. um, people like that. Um, how I, I would have like Thomas Jefferson, like created this kind of right. distinct kind of Bible. Right. But anyway, it makes me think about how um, our particular context shapes mm. how we think about what this what this thing is and even just the idea of you know the highlighted bible i think of it if is that a way of in of putting yourself into the text and does it serve as sort of a talisman in in a sense like this is a special bible because you yes. have put yourself into this i think that's i think to go along with the idea that the bible is sacred and holy i think there is always going to be some sense that it has some kind of power like almost physical power mm -hmm. like the idea like you know, that you could, you know, you could imagine in the fervor of a prayer meeting in the front of a church that people right. 
you know, you might place the Bible on someone's broken arm or leg, right. you know, like that yeah. kind of idea. And so, yeah, I think that that, I think that always, pl- I think that has to play some kind of a role. It almost, it, 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 work, it it's a good, it's a good, it's a good pairing is what yes. I want to say. It's like a nice wine pairing with that. It's like, you know, with the idea that the Bible is sacred and holy is the idea that it, it is, it is an object, a, a physical power. object of power. Yes. Well, because it makes me think about how there, there might be a certain set of people who would watch a young person color, color mm-hmm. code, yeah. the Bible, yeah. and think to themselves, oh, they're disrespecting or they're denigrating right. the holiness of the Bible. But in some ways you could argue, well, potentially they're elevating it, it right. because you've now invested right. this part of yourself. I'm looking at this young woman on TikTok, just Nayasha. She's got a video here on Bible highlighting. Oh. I found out that having a bunch of highlighters was actually a distraction for me. Aww. I would read and I would, instead oh. of focusing on the context and the she's text saying. Okay. itself, I would think, okay, which highlighter am I going to use? Sometimes like, we just... Aww. So she, so if you're really into it, okay, we'll post this. You can watch it. It's about yes. two minutes of her talking yes. about this journey with highlighting. So you can only take it so far. I could see how it, could, it actually could be quite distracting. If you have aesthetic, especially for you, because you, you would care. Speaking of aesthetics, to close, I have this idea. Okay. I, I just thought of this, literally just thought of this. What if as an act of honor to that artist... Whom I to- who's who the- whom the world has forgotten? What if I just recreated some of his art? You should do it. I should put it on your Instagram. Some of his Bible, and I'll put it on Instagram. We'll put some on the weird religion stories. This might be a deep cut for people who hear it later. I might not get do to it, it right away, but do I'll tr- I'll try it. to recreate do some of this it. anonymous artist whose name I can't remember. His art of the highlighting, marking. You know, I'm gonna try and find this person. Overwriting. Yeah, we'll, we're we're on a hunt. We're on okay. a search. This has been a production of Weird Religion. A podcast for people who know religion is weird but love it anyway. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Follow us into the ocean. Allow your heart to blossom. Retreat into the gorgeous and haunted forests of your mind. Find us there.